Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for tuning in to the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. It's always our goal to present truths from the Bible. And if you have any questions about the things that we talk about today, then please reach out to our congregation. And we'd love to sit down and open up our Bibles together and explore whatever questions you might have. In today's program, I want to explore one component of a doctrine called Calvinism. Now, perhaps you're not familiar with the term Calvinism, but it's more than likely that you've encountered the doctrine at some point in your conversations or in your experience with other religious people. Another term for Calvinism that's fairly common is Reformed. So if you're looking at a church's website and it says Reformed Theology or Reformed Doctrine, or if you talk to a local pastor in your community or one of your neighbors mentions that they're Reformed, that's just another name for Calvinism. Now at its core, Calvinism is the idea that in the matter of salvation, God gets all the glory. He is totally and absolutely sovereign in the matter of salvation. Now, on the outside, that seems like it's a good idea. And in a way, of course it is. God does get all the glory for our salvation. We wouldn't be saved without him. If it had not been for God sending his son, if it had not been for the willingness of Jesus, his son, to come, if it had not been for the offering that was made on the cross of Christ, we would not be saved. We would be hopeless and helpless when it comes to salvation. But the Calvinist takes the idea of God's sovereignty so far that he removes any responsibility that we have. Essentially, all of us are born into depravity. We are born bearing the burden and the responsibility and the guilt of Adam and Eve's original sin. We are born so totally depraved that we're not even capable on our own of even wanting to seek after God. And it takes a direct intercession on God's part. That is that he has to directly involve himself even in just us wanting to seek after him. So if it wasn't for God and his total sovereignty, you and I wouldn't even be able, wouldn't even want to seek after God. We're not capable of it. We're born so depraved. So as the Calvinists would go on to say, God picks and chooses those who are saved. People who are saved are predestined or preordained to salvation. He has chosen certain ones to be saved. And he has thrust salvation upon them, not because they chose to be saved, but because he chose them to be saved. Whether you're a Calvinist or not listening to this program today, the influence of this centuries-old theological orientation 
cannot be denied. In fact, the influence is even growing. According to the New York Times, yes, I said that right, the New York Times, evangelicalism is in the midst of a Calvinist revival. The article goes on to say, increasing numbers of preachers and professors teach the views of the 16th century French reformer John Calvin. Men like Mark Driscoll, John Piper, and Tim Keller, megachurch preachers and important evangelical authors, are all Calvinist. Attendance at Calvin-influenced worship services and churches is up, particularly among worshipers in their 20s and 30s. This 2014 article goes on to say, In the Southern Baptist Convention, the country's largest Protestant denomination, the rise of Calvinism has provoked discord. In a poll from a few years ago of over a thousand Southern Baptist pastors conducted by Lifeway Research, 30% considered their churches Calvinist, while twice as many were concerned about the impact of Calvinism, end quote. One of the main tenets of classical Calvinism, and this is what I want to explore in particular today, is the perseverance of the saints. Maybe you've heard the acronym TULIP to describe the main doctrines of Calvinism. Well, perseverance of saints is the P in the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. It's often called the eternal security of the believer, or perseverance of the saints, or perhaps impossibility of apostasy, or simply, once saved, always saved. Different denominations and different sources that you read might call it by another name, but at its core, it's once saved, always saved. That once God has saved you by an act of his own sovereign will, you are always saved. There's nothing you can do, no choice that you can make, no sin that you can commit, that will take God's salvation away from you. Several major denominations officially believe the doctrine, though some don't emphasize it. And as a result, the members may not even be aware of it. You might be a member of a church that's Calvinist and you don't even realize it. Look, for example, at the Book of Confessions of the United Presbyterian Church. Also known as the Westminster Confession, this statement of belief says this, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan, fall into grievous sin. So what the confessional is saying is that even though we might commit grievous sins, we are not lost. We cannot go from a state of being saved by God to a state of not being saved. The Philadelphia Confession, adopted by many Baptist churches, is almost identical to the above. A man named Sam Morris, who's pastor of the First Baptist Church in Stamford, Texas, expressed the doctrine in its most extreme form in the following way. We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. All the prayers a man may pray, all the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the ordinances he may observe, all the laws he may keep, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he may commit from idolatry to murder 
will not make his soul in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. So the question I want to answer today is, is this true? Is this what the Bible teaches? That once we are saved by the grace of God working through Jesus Christ, it is impossible to fall away so as to lose that salvation. Because of Calvinism's increasing popularity, it's important for us to have a scriptural answer to these questions. So let's look at a few of the common proof texts that are used to justify the idea of perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. If you've got a Bible handy, and I hope that you do, open up to the book of Romans in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. For just as is written, for thy sake we're being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage emphasizes the power of Christ's love. Nothing, according to this passage, nothing can separate us from it. After all, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution of any kind. Nothing in creation, according to this scripture, can take Christ's love away from us. But, but is this passage irrefutably teaching that we cannot lose our salvation? Take note of the fact that in this passage, these are all outside forces that Paul is addressing. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Everything in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, these are outside forces. Essentially, he's arguing that there is no person or earthly power that can take away your salvation. That all of your physical circumstances cannot remove God's love from you. It's wrong, however, to suggest that a Christian cannot forfeit his salvation by his own choice. Satan can't take away your salvation, but you can let go of it. And in an extreme circumstance, you can cast it aside, willfully, knowingly. Of all the things mentioned in Romans 8 that cannot separate us from the love of Christ, Paul never says self-will, or selfishness, or arrogance, or pride, or blasphemy. These are things that come from within, not from without. And all of them may lead to a person's total spiritual ruin. This is what Jesus was talking about back in Matthew 15, verses 16 through 20. Jesus makes it very clear there that it's not things outside of the body that defile the man. It's not what you eat. It's not physical things from outside. But it's what you are on the inside. For from the inside come evil thoughts and intentions and blasphemies. That is what defiles the man from the inside. So sure, an earthquake can't take your salvation away. Mount Kilauea in Hawaii and all the lava spewing forth from the earth cannot take away your salvation. Even Satan himself with all of his power cannot wrestle salvation from your soul. But through negligence or rebellion, you can. 
Next, go to John chapter 10. <clears throat> and in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus states here, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, this is supposed to be a very comforting passage, but nowhere does it assure us of the impossibility of internal forces causing us to walk away from Christ. Nobody can snatch us out of God's hands, but we can most certainly reject it or wander away from it. Luke chapter 15 verses 3 through 7 shows that a sheep can wander so as to become lost. And a man had a hundred sheep, and he counted them and found only ninety-nine were safe. There was one sheep that became lost. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, as the apostle Paul is warning the Christians from Ephesus about the impending dangers of apostasy, he uses the language of savage wolves being allowed to roam freely among the church. And because of that, we put ourselves in a position to fall away. Remember, the Son of God was reaching out to a church of baptized believers in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, describing the church in Laodicea. These Christians had rejected him by their self-absorption and self-reliance. And because of this, he says in this passage, in very memorable language, that because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. If they're once saved, always saved, what difference does it make if Christ spits them out of his mouth? What difference does it make if they're lukewarm? What have they lost if not salvation? And the thing is, you have to be in God's good grace before God can reject you. If he's saying, I will spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, therefore I will spit you out of my mouth, Inherent in that statement is the idea that you have to be in Christ first. You cannot be spit out of Christ unless you are first in Christ. But there's another proof text that people will often point to to justify this aspect of Calvinism. In 1 John 3 verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. I think we can all agree that taken by itself, that verse certainly sounds like it's justifying a belief in Calvinism. Yet there are many other passages within the context of 1 John that show a Christian can sin and most certainly does sin. Take 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, for example. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says very similar things. Why does John warn his readers to guard themselves from idols in chapter 5, verse 21, if it's impossible for idols to lead them astray? If it's impossible for you to fall away from God's grace, if it's impossible for you to fall away from sin, then why would John give any warnings at all in his first epistle? 
He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now the thing about verse 24 is, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. It is inferred, they're not just inferred, it's plainly stated that you are abiding in him. That's just another term for being saved, isn't it? I don't know how you can abide in Jesus Christ and not be saved. So look what John is saying. When you keep God's commandments, you are abiding in him. What would happen if you stopped keeping his commandments? What would happen if you stopped keeping his commandments? Well, you wouldn't be abiding in him any longer. To abide in Christ, we have to keep his commandments. And if we stop keeping his commandments, then we stop abiding in him. The passage assumes that you are already abiding in him and that that abiding with Christ is a contingent abiding, that you can abide in him and then lose the presence of Christ in your life by failing to keep his commandments. So getting back to this really difficult passage in chapter 3, verse 9, that no one who is born of God practices sin. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Let's offer a little more explanation to that. This passage isn't saying that it's impossible for a Christian to sin and fall away. Rather, it's setting up an ideal to strive for. If you claim to be born of God, then you need to live like it. God's seed abides in us, so we must constantly strive to live up to the standard that he sets. We must not sin if we wish to show Christ living in us. Besides, the phrase here, practices sin, is specific to habitual or continual sins. So it's certainly possible, and I think most likely, that what John is saying is, if you practice sin as a lifestyle, you cannot be saved. No one who is born of God practices sin habitually. Now, people who are born of God might occasionally sin. We might fail at times, and that's why 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10 is written, So that if you sin and confess your sins to the Father, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all the sins that we've committed. But there's a big difference, a big difference between living habitually in sin, willfully, or living in a rebellious way of keeping sin. There's a huge difference between willfully living in sin and occasionally slipping up and falling into sin. Those are two very different things. And 1 John 3 verse 9 is not talking about the occasional sin. It is talking about practicing sin. Let's move on to another idea before we run out of time. Ask the question, is faith essential or not? Because I find it fascinating. And by the way, this is, this is a whole other radio program or sermon or Bible study on its own of salvation by faith alone. But I find it fascinating that some of the strongest, most outspoken proponents of salvation by faith alone seem to discount faith altogether by arguing for once saved, always saved. A lot of the same people arguing for salvation by faith alone are also Calvinists who believe in once saved, always saved. Many New Testament passages, however, show that a Christian can lose his faith and stand condemned before God. 
So I want to ask the Calvinist who believes in salvation by faith alone, I want to, I want to ask him, which one is it? Is faith essential or not? Because you can't have it both ways. You cannot argue by salvation, by faith alone, while at the same time saying that if God has predestined you to salvation, then you're predestined forever. You're once saved, always saved. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, and 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20, these are both passages that talk about certain individuals who'd lost their faith. These are, these are people who were Christians, but had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, as Paul puts it here. They've abandoned the faith. They've exchanged the faith for worldly things, for, for selfishness and sin. But the thing is, you can't suffer shipwreck in regard to your faith if you didn't have faith in the first place. You, you can't shipwreck something that wasn't real. Or was it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, 17, uh, verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth. You know, you have to be in the truth before you go astray from it. You can't go astray from something that you didn't have. You can't go astray from a place that you never were. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 through 14 is the same way. We meet a man there named Simon, and Simon is a former sorcerer. He's a, a magician, a charlatan, really. And Simon becomes a Christian, and he believes, and he is saved. But somewhere along the way, he gets it stuck in his head that he can pay money for the power of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles confront him about that. They tell him in no uncertain terms that if he doesn't change his attitude, he will not be saved. My question is, was Simon saved or not when he became a believer in Christ? To argue against the reality of his salvation is just, it's too convenient. It's a ridiculous fallacy to make the circular argument that he must not have really been saved in the first place then. But Simon did, in fact, do as the other Samaritans did. He believed and was baptized. He was saved, Mark 16, verse 16. And verses 21 through 23 in Acts chapter 8 goes on to show that he committed sin to the point of perishing if he didn't repent and pray. Now go to Galatians 5, really important passage here, probably the most important passage. In Galatians 5 in the New Testament here, it says here in verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you need to keep standing firm if salvation is based entirely on a sovereign act of God? If salvation is based entirely on God predestining you, handpicking you to be saved, and you cannot by any act you do, good or bad, change the outcome. If we are once saved, always saved, then why do you need to keep standing firm and not be subject again to a yoke of slavery? The language just doesn't make sense. Verse 2 of Galatians 5, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Think about that. You cannot be severed from something that you weren't connected to. You cannot fall from something at which you had not arrived. Another great passage that talks about falling away from the living God is Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13. That if we develop an evil and unbelieving heart, 
this will lead us to fall away from the living God. It's impossible to deny that the Hebrew writer is addressing fellow Christians because he begins the passage with the phrase, Take care, brothers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who very much have the possibility of falling away if they develop an evil and unbelieving heart. That doesn't sound like once saved, always saved to me. The real difficulty in accepting the doctrine of eternal security of the believer is that it essentially nullifies most of the Bible. Jesus consistently warned his listeners about the dangers of falling away in passages like John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Using similar language, the Apostle Paul explains that being a part of of Christ's kingdom is like being grafted onto an olive tree in Romans 11, verses 16 through 24. And branches can be taken off just as easily as branches can be grafted in. Well, we've run out of time, and there's certainly a lot of other things we could say on this subject. So if you do have questions about this or anything else related to Calvinism, then please reach out to Monte Vista. We'd love to sit down and study these things further with you. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montevistacoc.com. Hallelujah.